Welcome to a special mini-series of Innovate at Open, the podcast that explores open source through the lenses of distributed collaboration, collective invention, and technology creation. In this mini-series, we'll consider the question of, was open source inevitable, and what that tells us about software's past and future. I'm your host, Gordon Half, Technology Evangelist at Red Hat. Welcome to the final episode of our series, Was Open Source Inevitable? Our final scenario deals with commercialization. Is there a timeline where Linux succeeds in relative niches, network infrastructure and supercomputing, say, but never gets over the hump of enterprise IT skepticism that still existed around 2000, as it needed to do in order to become a mainstream commercial success? One pivotal event in particular gets widely cited for getting Linux over that hump. That was IBM's decision in the year 2000 to announce that it was embracing Linux as strategic to its system strategy. The next year, then IBM CEO Lou Gerstner said that they'd spend a billion dollars on Linux over the next year. There are two questions to ask about these decisions. Given Linux, was it inevitable that IBM will embrace it? And secondly, was that embrace really of crucial importance? For the first question, we turn to retired IBM executive Irving Wodolsky Berger, who led internet and then Linux strategy for IBM at the crucial turn of the century juncture. By the late 90s, it was clear that Linux was becoming more and more important, and we formed a major task force to see to what extent IBM should embrace Linux. And it happened in 1999. And the task force came back and said, we absolutely should embrace Linux, that it was going to be an incredibly important part of the world of computing, that we should embrace Linux across all of IBM's offerings, and that IBM should become a major supporter of Linux. I still remember very well, in December of 99, I called Sam Parmizano, the head of IBM Systems Group, and I said, Sam, the task was recommended we should embrace Linux, and Sam said, okay, Irving, we will do that, but you have to now come over and run IBM's Linux initiative. And I said to Sam, okay, uh, we were pretty much done with our internet strategy, so I was no longer needed to run the internet division, and I said to Sam, when do you want to announce it? And Sam said, how about now? I said, well, Sam, it's the Christmas holidays. Maybe we should wait until the New Year. And in the second week of January of 2000, IBM made a major announcement saying that IBM would embrace Linux across all of its offerings. And in fact, later that month, in January of 2000, I gave a keynote 
Javits Center in New York City uh, about IBM's Linux initiative. And at some level, the rest is history. Thus, from the perspective of someone best in the position to know, IBM's Linux embrace was something of an inevitability. But how important was that endorsement really? Was it just a natural response to how Linux and other elements of open source, such as Apache, were already becoming widespread? Was widespread enterprise adoption just a matter of time? However, some view IBM's endorsement as important or even a game changer. Here's Matt Acey of Amazon Web Services. One of the biggest things that happened for, for open source was IBM's billion-dollar commitment to Linux. And it was mostly marketing dollars um, that they were committing. And it was, again, self-interested because they wanted to build a business around Linux. But it, I, I was living through it, and I remember the, the time before it happened and the time after it happened. Before it happened, we would struggle. We were selling Linux to these different manufacturers of uh, personal digital assistants, and we'd say we'd walk in with Linux, and, and they'd say, I've heard of this GPL thing. It's radioactive. No way do I want that. And then IBM um, comes out again. I think it was 2001. Says, "Hey, we're putting. We're big. And I don't mean this. I mean this actually with profound respect. We're a big, boring company, enterprise company, and we're going to put a billion dollars into Linux. And almost overnight, the conversations changed. And so that I think was a seminal moment. It, for open source generally, certainly for commercial open source. Dave Neary of the Red Hat Open Source Program Office. You know, the, the point that, that, that the thing that people point to is that the IBMs were going to bet $1 billion on, on Linux. That, that, in, that, that is an inflection point. And Stephen Von Nichols of CBS Interactive. What the IBM acceptance does is it gives an official Fortune 50 blessing to an operating system which previously was still seen as this thing that only really nerdy academic sorts were going to do anything with and yes it could be useful for little companies who can't afford to buy an ibm mini or mainframe or the i suppose a sun spark station but now after their blessing it's all these businesses that otherwise might not even at this point have even heard about Linux yet are waking up and saying, well, what is this anyway? Why are they putting on these odd advertisements on primetime television with this little kid named Linux and who's going to do all these wonderful things? So as people who are primarily technologists, I don't think it made that much of a difference to us, but for the business world, the greater economic world, I think that made an enormous difference. Whenever I write stories about Linux history, I always you know, credit that as being the development which turned Linux from being this odd technic techie background thing to something that all businesses at least were familiar with. And then, of course, as time goes on, more and more of them adopt it. On the other hand, if IBM's endorsement was truly as inevitable as we heard from Irving Wodolsky-Berger, doesn't that suggest that Linux and open source already had a great deal of momentum? Perhaps it was Linux pulling IBM along rather than the other way around. 
Certainly, open source was already extremely important to what we've been calling niches, such as internet infrastructure and supercomputing. But, you know, these weren't really just niches by the 2000 timeframe. Still, the IBM investment and endorsement may well have accelerated adoption by Airprise IT and accelerated the corporatization of open source, which Diane Mueller, Director of Community Development at Red Hat, argues was needed for its eventual success. Open source itself was probably inevitable. There would be a point where we switched from just sharing best practices and lessons learned and simple scripts for doing things. I think that would have, that juncture, we would have jumped over that hurdle and started sharing more of the code. I think that was inevitable. And then once people got addicted to the idea of collaborating on things across business lines, across global regions, then, you know, we would have always seen this, this growth in the open source landscape and the number of projects. And in some ways, as much as it sounds like a terrible thing, the corporatization of open source, if it might have died, it might have, um, we might have had this big arc, and then we might have been in the trough of uh, disillusionment, that Gartner trough um, for open source, had corporate corporations not started backing and realizing that they needed these people to be working full time on these projects because these projects became the linchpins of their product offerings or their service offerings or their hosting service or you know, the many things that depend on open source. It's a bit of a conundrum because I really like the early days, those back going back to those DECAS user groups and, you know, things where we were kind of very, very early days starting to share knowledge in an open way and come together around a platform. And there was, it seemed in the in prior times, there was much more of an academic flavor to it an individual flavor to open source. As soon as companies like Red Hat started backing Linux and offering support for it, then the corporatization became inevitable. If no company like Red Hat had stepped into the foray to start offering services, I think that was inevitable, that even the hobbyists need help. Even the hobbyists who wanted to use it on small businesses. And it feels a little bit like, you know, if like a science fiction movie. If we really think about it as it might have stayed at the hobbyist level of services and support, you know, like small five, ten person companies that were supporting it. But when, as soon as we flipped the switch and companies started backing it in a big way, that was when the corporatization became inevitable to me, or like looking back in hindsight. And had we not, or had other people not also stepped into the foray and started putting engineering resources on these projects, making sure that it was fully supported, yeah, open source might not have done it. You know, it might not have, it might not be what it is today. It was, the I think, the realization that, one, you could make money supporting open source projects and doing the technical support and release management and all of the goodness that's there that really made the corporatization inevitable. And had that not happened, um, we might still be, you know, downloading from a very different internet and a very different. We might still be in Gopher and Veronica land. A lot of the innovation that we see was driven by people's thirst to productize and to create 
new things that they could make and monetize. So I think we'd see a very different landscape now had those initial companies not stepped into the foray. In this series, we've gone through six scenarios, six counterfactuals, six possible inflection points, where the timeline leading to open source as we know it today could have plausibly diverged. We took as given broad technology and economic trends, such as commodity microprocessors and Moore's Law. We also assumed an interconnected network, at least passably resembling the internet, and the inevitable sharing that took place over the network and in other ways. Was Unix inevitable? An important question given that Linux, but really much of open source more broadly, is so tightly entwined with the Unix tree. The specific chain of events that led to the creation of Unix at Bell Labs looks fragile, but William Henry makes a convincing argument that some network-centric operating system for less expensive, less powerful hardware will have inevitably emerged from the widespread collaboration and sharing going on in academia and elsewhere. Furthermore, Given how mainstream modern operating systems have generally converged around a process-centric design rather than, say, data flow architectures, it seems likely that not Unix would look more like Unix than not. What if Richard Stallman had not brought the Free Software Foundation into being and established principles for free software, including a copyleft license, making sharing of software an overt political act. Dave Neary thinks that open source will have been successful without the copyleft GPL, but maybe not as commercially successful. Richard Fontana notes that Stallman himself made it clear that free software was compatible with commercialization. But absent Stallman, an ideological void might have been filled by activists far less friendly to profit and corporate use. Richard Fontana also reminds us that open source licenses are rooted in copyright law, and where software not copyrightable, it's not clear that you'd have open source as we know it today, but you also maybe wouldn't need it. Coming back to Stallman, Luis Villa observes that it was his focus on controlling behavior through licenses that led them to become the often solitary blunt tool available. See the ongoing debate over ethical open source licenses today. Perhaps the most contentious topic was the importance of Linux. Brian Cantrill argues that one of the BSD Unixes that came out of Berkeley would have filled the void absent Linus Torvalds. They were already in use at companies like Yahoo and were popular in internet infrastructure while Linux was still relatively immature. Rob Hirschfeld thinks you did need someone like Linus Torvalds to make an open source operating system project a coherent entity. But if that person weren't Linus, it would have been someone else. But Brian Prophet worries that the fragmentation of the BSD communities might have continued unabated as it did in the proprietary Unix world with a corresponding, perhaps fatal, 
splintering of developer mindshare. And Stephen Von Nichols wonders if, without Linz Torvalds, open source might have stalled out and we might all be running Windows 2020 on our servers today. Linux perhaps comes closer than anything else to, for want of a nail, the war was lost. Speaking of Microsoft, how did it blow its seemingly irresistible rise in the 1990s? To Brian Cantrell, Microsoft's position was always an illusion and a serious miscalculation by much of the industry. That said, according to Brian Prophet, Microsoft could have played the long game better and parlayed their strength with developers into a better long-term position had they abandoned their worst hardball tactics. However, doing so may not have been plausible with its first generation of leadership. The endorsement of Linux by IBM was seemingly inevitable given the circumstances of the time, according to Irving Woldolskyberger. Matt Acey, Stephen Von Nichols, and Brian Prophet all argue that endorsement helped accelerate Linux. But what was the cause and effect? Diane Mueller argues that whatever the cause, the eventual corporatization of open source was probably necessary for its eventual success. Perhaps your takeaway from our little jaunt through the history of open source is that the forces leading to open source were too powerful to allow the timeline to diverge in significant ways. As Brian Cantrell puts it, um, I think that there were a lot of of open source contributors in terms of software bodies out there. Um, and I think had it, the, the idea of Torvalds as creator of heaven and earth, I definitely think is a, is a misread of history. And I think we would have, uh, I think history would have unfolded in not wholly dissimilar ways. I think that, and, and that's probably true of, of any given individual. I, I, I don't know that it, it, it's very hard for single individuals, unless they're going to be assassins of archdukes, to really shape the course of, of history. It, it, I think that the economic forces of play are just too great. But as you consider whether you agree or disagree with what you've heard, you may also all consider the timing, because that can be important. Even if you assume that open source in some form was ultimately an inevitability, the relationship of important open source-related events to macro factors like the dot-com bust is both important and unpredictable as is its relationship to the leadership at key companies. Mike Purcell, Chief Security Architect at Red Hat. I don't think it was inevitable at any particular time. I think maybe we could say that in the fullness of time, it maybe would be inevitable, but I can see we could have gone a lot further without, without it being inevitable, if that makes sense, without it happening yet. I, can, I could see our being sort of around now or five, ten years ago with open source becoming a thing. But I, I'm not convinced it was inevitable right from the get-go. I think there were some lucky breaks, and maybe that could, could have happened earlier in some ways, but I don't think the timing is inevitable. I would like to think that human nature is such that we would have got there in the end, but that's not the same as saying we'd have it now. Many companies could have done different things in this story. Microsoft, Sun, maybe digital equipment, IBM. 
Doing so would have required overcoming great institutional inertia, but it wasn't impossible, which may be a good lesson for why it is important to overcome organizational hurdles. We've also tended to paint some things as black and white when they're really not. The commercial success of open source, the broad victory of collaboration as the key to innovation, it's not that simple. For example, Matt Acey of Amazon Web Services argues that while participation in open source today is deep and wide, it took a fairly long period to incubate open source as a commercially interesting way to collaborate. But I think it is the I think it's the commercialization of open source and the and the rampant self-interest, corporate self-interest that is really making it. It's the thing that gets called out as is open source sustainable. Oh, we have these developers. How are they going to make a living? Um, how are we going to ensure that this project persists? And I think, and I don't want to be too Adam Smith on this, but I think that I think that the the key to it all, the key to making open source really thrive, is the fact that it no longer requires any of that collegiality. Um, we have that. We definitely have that. You see it if you go to an OSCON or you see people working it, and you see it in the messaging message lists as well. Um, people working at different companies getting along just fine, and they think of themselves first and foremost as I'm a Linux developer. Oh, and by the way, I work for IBM. Or I'm a Kubernetes developer. Oh, by the way, I work for VMware or whatever, but they're they're a developer on a certain project first. So there is some collegiality there, but the thing that really makes it work, the thing that gives me the most hope that it's sustainable, that it's going to continue to thrive, is precisely that we don't really have to rely on people's good intentions anymore. And I think there was a time in open source or free software where you did. And as much as I think people are inherently good, tend to trust people to do the right thing, I would, I feel safer with open source knowing that I don't have to trust people to want to do the right thing all the time. Furthermore, while open source is now well-established as an approach to developing software, Rob Hirschfeld of RackN points out that aspects of the collaboration remain fragile. On the surface, I think, you know, open source the way we envision it working is very fragile. And when I say open source, what I mean is a shared code base where there's true multi-vendor collaboration. Uh, and the word vendor is really important to me in open source because it's people who have a commercial interest in the success of the code base. And so if you're looking at a, at a case where multiple vendors are sharing a common good right? Tragedy of the commons is a very real thing. They're sharing and collaborating around a common set of shared value components. That's a very hard thing to maintain, especially with loose governance and loose rules, which is sort of inherent in open source. Then the idea that we're going to have multiple people profiting from a shared code base is very, very hard to sustain in, in a real way. And very few, very few things have done it. We've seen open source succeed as a single vendor, you know, or a single vendor dominated component where that vendor sort of shepherds it. And we've seen very few uh, projects really succeed um, at, at a big scale um, where they have a real community uh, sustaining model. 
Certainly, sustainability is an ongoing challenge, especially for projects that don't have major corporate backing. Patreon donations are not, in general, a sustainability model. Chris Anazek, Developer Relations at the Linux Foundation. I have a lot of concern around developers, you know, going this donation-based approach. It's something that's kind of bothers me a little bit personally because, you know, donations have never worked well for, you know, starving artists for for many for for for, for eons. Uh, I think through throughout the history. And what's even worse is I think it even enables what we what I could essentially call like a like developer open source focused gig economy where people are expecting donations. And, you know, they're not making enough money. Like, I've actually done a lot of research in this. There's very few developers out there actually, you know, being sustained by donations. I think it's a poor model. Instead, we should be teaching them how to find jobs or build businesses around the cool stuff they've done so they can actually sustain themselves with, you know, a, a great business or with salary, with benefits and, and all that goodness that we come to come to expect. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's interesting because, you know, we've had this recent trend of, GitHub sponsors and people accepting donations, which is kind of nice. But I, like, I don't want developers to be confused that this is actually a sustainable way to, to do things. And it's just something that I think we could do better. And it's, it's, it's almost wrong, I think, to spread that this is actually a possibility for, 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 for most folks. So. so even if you've come away from this series convinced that there was indeed a certain inevitability to open source, we hope that you'll also reflect on how its current state may not have been preordained in every detail. Some dice rolls might have gone differently. It might have come later or with less impact. It's not hard to find ongoing challenges even today, whatever open source's great success overall. Open source isn't going away, of course, and some form of it probably never was but it should never be taken for granted. Thank you for listening to this episode of Innovate at Open. For future episodes, subscribe to Innovate at Open on your favorite podcast app. You can also go bitmason, B-I-T-M-A-S-O-N, dot blogspot.com for show notes, blogs, and a full archive of episodes and more. Thank you for listening. This is Gordon Half, technology evangelist at Red Hat.